Being on the left really interferes with my socialist politics. <laughs> Hi again, this is Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast, at the end of the end of history. The period in which Western liberal democracy was held to be the final form of human government is now over. We're charting what's emerging and what comes next. Produced from Brazil and the UK, we scan the globe to understand the politics, economics and culture of the new era. Today we're talking to the writer Amber Lee Frost about the limitations of liberal feminism about victimhood and confessional writing, and about the deeply unfashionable topic of parenting. All right, so welcome everyone. I'm Alex Hochuli. We are very pleased to have Amber Ali Frost with us today. Uh, Also here uh, are Alpha Bunga Bunga regulars and co-producers, George Hoare in London and Ben Fogel, who's also in London this time. Unfortunately. Yeah. (laughs) Amber, I wanted to firstly ask you, um, I mean, we all know Feminism means a million different things today. It's probably the most misrepresented and travestied political position in, in contemporary politics, certainly in the United States, in Britain, and perhaps elsewhere. Um, so as a starting point, uh, what do you see for yourself, like the headline differences between the sort of socialist feminism you'd advocate and more mainstream, lean-in, liberal, corporate feminism? I mean, I think you all know the answer to that question. Uh- <laughs> we have to start somewhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I... Um- for me, I'm pretty Firestonian about this stuff. I mean, she was alone, but she was right about some things, or or Ingalls, if you would prefer. Um, I see women as a category that originated with a, a biological sexual dimorphism that has produced a pre-capitalist division of labor. And from there, we get all kinds of insane stuff, like culturally and economically. Um And my solutions to this are highly economistic. Um, I, you know, I I, I don't particularly, um, I don't particularly uh, connect with most of the popular feminist discourse um, right now because it's mostly sort of um, social or cultural or about representation. Um, Those questions are obviously interesting you know, uh, on a, on a micro level, um, you know, when you want to talk shit with the girls or whatever. Um, but for me, uh, feminism has always been interesting as a, um, as a political problem, um, as in, as an economic challenge. Um, the problem I had is that early I was sort of earlier, I was sort of more interested in sort of the gender stuff, the cultural stuff. And, um, Basically, when I started reading about, you know, things like, you know, domestic labor and divisions of of labor in the home and stuff like that, I figured out pretty quickly that those questions aren't really interesting anymore because we know how to fix them. Uh, We figured Mm -hmm. it out. We cracked the code, like in the 70s. Mm. (laughs) Like We figured it out. It's just like a comprehensive welfare state, uh, lots of free time, uh, modern homes with modern technology. And, um, 
And yeah, and you know, in some places, like a little bit of affirmative action regarding things like uh, male parenting. Um, so it's almost a strange thing to be sort of a, a socialist and a feminist now because you kind of know what we have to do. You just so you just end up repeating yourself over and over again. Well, I think like the prevailing liberal thought is that this stuff has been done. I guess, or that even um, changing these material relationships, the culture still stands, right? It's a sort of like a very idealistic view of society where uh, even if you change women's roles in societies, it won't really change because there's still this culture that holds people in, that men will still act like assholes and that women will still be objectified. And that can't change and that won't change or that will only change through some sort of culture warrior approach to politics. Yeah, but even if you believe that, what is the foundation for altering a culture? Like, if you don't have any leverage, how, how do you how do you change culture? I mean, obviously, like you need major political shifts in order to. I mean, there's a reason why these why we're in the the gender situation that we're in at the moment. It's not completely arbitrary, um, and you know, I just. I don't understand why people think that they can make gains on a political problem without politics. Um, it it's worked in kind of it's it's worked to a point, um, and I do wish feminists were more honest more more honest about that. Um, but you know, at some point, obviously, you hit a wall. Um, I remember. I was like very early and as a socialist, um, I was like head of like some youth feminist caucus or whatever in democratic socialists of America. And we were talking to these kind of old guard second waivers, just, just like these wonderful women from like Chicago women's liberation union and, and trade unionists or whatever. And, you know, they were asking us sort of these like very serious practical questions that, you know, we didn't necessarily consider that were just sort of, um, you know, good, good organizational HR. They're like, well, can women join this organization without immediately getting hit on or ignored or whatever? Um, you know, do they join as, as members? You know, uh, is it expected that they're going to be contributors and participants? Are they tokenized? That kind of thing. And they were interesting questions and we kind of found that, yeah, there's one or two leches and, you know, the sort of things you would expect. But by the end of it, um, this woman, she kind of like broke her professionalist kind of um, facade. She's like, you know, I just have to say, I think it's so great what you girls are doing. She's like, you know, men are so different now. She's like, you men now, you know, they, they like do dishes and they like change diapers. And she's like, it didn't used to be like that at all. And I think it's kind of silly to act like we haven't made a lot of advances on the social level. Um, it's just that without an economic project behind that, you're going to reach a point, you're going to reach the limit of that. It doesn't matter how, you know, woke your boyfriend is or whatever. Fundamentally, the problem isn't something that can be solved, um, you know, through, through some kind of enlightenment or consciousness raising problem. Well, like whenever um, I, whenever I kind of have this discussion and, you know, I'll propose, well, you know, to the extent that I am a feminist, I wouldn't define myself as a male feminist because everyone who does seems to be absolute <laughs> human trash. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but, you know, you go, well, look, I'm all in favor of 
free universal childcare for women, uh, right to abortion and these things. And there's a kind of, I don't know, whenever I have these arguments, a kind of sneering response like, huh, yeah, of course you would say that, but you're like, you're not really taking the problem seriously. Often in these discussions, liberal feminists will be outright dismissive of actual practical material changes which would liberate women uh, as if it's, you know, just uh, just some like some mere practical issue which doesn't get to the heart of the real issue, which is a cultural one. I mean, I think we need to be perfectly honest about the fact that liberal feminism as a project is antithetical and hostile to the socialist project. I have zero tolerance for these women, <laughs> just zero tolerance. I mean, uh, to, to add on to that, one of the things I particularly have seen over the last few years with the sort of, I guess people call it new wave of feminism, and particularly in uh, left-wing academic cultural spaces, is sort of like the rise of like uh, ironic misandry as a way of doing business or something which is like seen as cool and social value. Yeah. What do you think is behind that? I mean, I, it's something I've really noticed when I came to the U.S. It's sort of spread everywhere now. But like, is is there something driving that? Is this the entry of liberal feminism into left spaces or something else? So I think what happened, and you know, this is a very loose survey of kind of uh, popular feminist thought or whatever, is around 2014, people saw the um, the crack showing in kind of a like libertine, sex positive. Um, everyone's just having a good time sort of feminism. I think Ariel Levy wrote um, about it in Female Chauvinist Pigs, which is a really dated book, but is like very much a good portrait of that of that time. And this idea of, um, you know, uh, libertinism and like entrepreneurialism and all of these things, it's like that were very much the rallying cries of um, kind of an early 2000s feminism. And around 2014, people were like, actually, this shit sucks. Um, it has not been very helpful. It's uh, not, um, you know, seen to a lot of our major complaints with regards to being a woman. So people actually started revisiting, I think, very smart, very strange feminists that, uh, you know, I... I, I, I like that people started reading, for example, Valerie Solanus again, who was a loon, um, but I think wrote very fascinatingly about um, the suburbs, very insightfully uh, about kind of like atomized suburban life. Um, she also like wanted to kill men. Um, so, you know, you take the good with the bad. Or like uh, Andrea Dworkin, who never really gets credit for being a very like thoughtful person. There was a slight... Uh, reinvigoration of Shulamith Firestone, um, mostly because she died, and people were like, "Oh, there's this crazy wild woman who was this, um, you know, um, this Inglesist. You know, she she developed that theory of the family much further, and she went in a lot of strange directions. But also, she tried to take that line of thinking to its natural conclusion. Um, and so, in that, they kind of did a sort of a, a, I don't know what you would call it. I forget what it's called in the humanities, but like a cultural like retrieval project. Like basically they tried to sort of like rehab like people like Solanus and Dworkin a little bit. And so it started out as this kind of cheeky, like actually these women are smart and they said some interesting things. I'll, I think a lot of people were also lying about actually having read them, but um, 
And uh, oh, so they read like, the Tumblr posts. This is yeah, Tumblr, yeah, yeah, yeah. They read the Tumblr posts. I I saw someone on the train today reading the Scum Manifesto. So it's it's, uh, it's so fun. It's such a fun read. Um, and like, there's some actually smart insights uh, about it. Um, but I think it that curve to like you know the kill all men male tears thing, which is very weird because it started out as a joke. Like so many things on the internet, it was like this tongue-in-cheek thing. But are you familiar with the term irony poisoning? Yes. Okay. Explain so, that. Explain that to us for for listeners who don't know. Basically, and I don't know. <laughs> you make a joke about something that you are perhaps ambivalent about, or has like a kernel of truth, um, but you're uncomfortable confronting um, the reality of it. So you make the joke, and you make the joke, and you make the joke, and eventually, you can't tell if you're kidding or not. Mm. Um, and that's what happened. I mean, to me, the misandry thing was when feminists got irony poisoning. Um, and to me, it's just completely absurd. It's just, it's just bullshit bourgeois women, you know, like complaints about their shitty men, which I'm, I'm sure their men are shitty. Um, but I mean, it's what happens when you date male feminists. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, I'm sorry, you made your bed. Um, but like, <laughs> well, maybe, maybe he made the bed. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, he starched the sheets. That was his he moral offsetting. Yeah. <laughs> he's an asshole, but he did did the sheets, you know. So yeah, he, he did so, the sheets so he can white knight in them. <laughs> <laughs> so it became this kind of thing where a lot of middle class women's, um, you know, were deeply unhappy, and I think a lot of this is also associated with the generational thing, where there was huge, high, incredibly high unemployment post two thousand eight, especially. They had nothing to do but look at Tumblr all day because they didn't have fucking jobs. And they kind of misapprehended the problem. And it's because that's surficially guys being shitty is, is much more articulate, much more easily articulated than I'm extremely alienated. And the role that men have in my life has is is has an outsized influence on what it should because I'm not economically independent, because I'm not secure. Um, so yeah, this misandry thing happened. And for me, it was just like, oh my God, I never really had a problem with men. I had a problem with bosses. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it just, it's just that so many bosses are men. Like it was, a, it was in a, to them it became a distinction without a difference. But to me, it's like, no, that's an aesthetic, arbitrary um, sort of diagnosis of the problem. And I think any woman who's ever had a female boss I mean, the fact that all, so many women hated Hillary Clinton should have been an indicator that uh, most women aren't sitting around uh, diagnosing their problems as, as you know, it, individual men or groups of men being the source of them. And for, and I'm pretty staunch on this as well, for, you know, like bourgeois women in any kind of, um, in, in any kind of liberal democracy for all its flaws, like they're, they're, is no patriarchy like it's ex just extremely difficult to 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 actually do that you'd have to be on like a mormon cult or something it's not that you don't experience sexism and i used to be kind of fast and loose with the term patriarchy i was like well whatever it's shorthand i've i've hardened up a lot on what we should on terminology i do actually now believe that 
Don't call something fascist if it's not fascist. Don't call something white supremacist if it's not white supremacist. Don't call something patriarchy if it's not patriarchy. Because those things have specific prescriptions. Mm. And if you don't Mm. diagnose it correctly, you're not going to get the right prescriptions. Yeah, you completely evacuate them uh, from meaning. And one thing that I liked about your piece, which we'll come on to discuss um, a little bit later, but uh, that you do say, make reference to to kind of a personal anecdote when you go, no, this is real patriarchy. It kind of made me laugh. Right. Well, I had a, I had a, I came to this conclusion talking with a friend of mine, um, uh, Jennifer Pan, who has written about um, white nationalist movements, and she grew up in the '90s in Idaho during the height of the militia movement. Yeah, all they have there is like, uh, you know, potatoes, one like okay college football team, and dudes with guns in the hills. Exactly, exactly. And I'm from Indiana, which was the, you know, the second wave of the KKK. And we just kept reading people talking about like white supremacy. And they just kept saying white supremacy to call all these things. And she's like, do you ever feel weird about this? Because we've been exposed to literal white supremacists. And I'm like, yeah, maybe this isn't helpful. And it's just if, if you've seen an actual white supremacist calling like a TV show for having like poor representation, whatever that means, white supremacist is so fucking laughable. And if you've been exposed to literal patriarchy, you know, calling sexist jokes, patriarchy is it's just come on, grow up. Well, I guess it might also have the effect of people rejecting abstractions altogether, right? Because if mm-hmm. you if you experience patriarchy as literally your father or your husband keeping you at home and not letting you out, uh, then talking about a sexist joke being patriarchy, it's like, well, that just seems so abstract. That must be bullshit. Like, that term must be bullshit. Right. Right. You would say that, oh, it doesn't exist at all. And it's yeah. like, no, I mean, it exists, you know, for like economically dependent women. It exists in weird kind of, you know, like, insular conservative communities as well but i mean i'm very much with marx on this capitalism has been a mixed bag um but women quote. <laughs> workforce has yeah. <laughs> but uh there there are perks and wh- there were perks to women entering the workforce yep you know sometimes we like died in fires and stuff but you know <laughs> got you out of the house <laughs> It did change labor relations on, uh, you know, within the domestic sphere. Right. So let's let's change tack a little bit. And uh, I'm going to pass over to George, actually, who wanted to delve deeper into the question of confessional writing uh, in reference specifically to something that you've written on this. Right. Yeah, so I think I, I thought your, your point just now, this this idea that you can you kind of think that you can make gains on a political problem without politics. Um I think that really that definitely resonated and it's it's so the, the piece here confession booth the trouble with the trauma industry um rereading this just just uh today really interesting how this was uh this um, kind of college rape moral panic um mm-hmm. ended up being one of the pre well precursors in in some ways of, of the me too um movement um right. so maybe another, maybe another category of women too like that are no way in no way like statistically more likely to be sexually assaulted generally the safer women it's like college students movie stars <laughs> like uh you know women in like elite media spaces like this entire this entire spectacle has been completely focused like it, it honestly it's disgusting to me because 
the impression I get is that, well, some rapes are more tragic than others. Mm. So I, I guess there's a, a question behind all this as well around around liberal feminism and why why do you think it has as this characteristic mode of argument the appeal to personal um, experience i think the notion is often presented that having experienced something puts you in a privileged position to understand it and to talk about it and this seems this seems to be quite a central plank of the contemporary kind of liberal feminist project well i mean this might be a little bit cynical but i'm pretty vulgar marxist about this i think standpoint theory um uh, was very advantageous to, you know, uh, women and minorities trying to make their way into the academy and, you know, having to basically justify their own work. And if you can say, like, actually, I'm an authentic voice, you know, then, you know, people are more inclined to listen to you or at least pretend like they're listening to you because it's a novelty. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think the prevalence of standpoint theory is is. Um, just incredibly, incredibly, um, I I think it's due to just the the economic marketplace at the university, you know, everyone needs an edge. So if Mm. you try out your identity, you know, that's a, that's an edge, you know? And authenticity, that, that idea, I mean, it definitely gives some intellectual weight behind what you're saying that can't, um, can't always be countered with rational argument right. and that's actually yeah and I mean, that got one... pushed forward during the 90s as well during like you know the height of authenticity is king you know it, it was it, it was a confluence with a lot of other kind of social phenomenon and cultural phenomenon as well mm. so one one thing that i found really striking um was when you saw, when you talk about uh, what you call survivor memoirs and you sort of say they can be highly resistant to critique by virtue of their pathos so they have this carapace of, of trauma as you call it around them and this reminded me of um, this idea of cynical reason put forward by people like Sloterdijk and Zizek, which basically says it's impossible to critique some contemporary ideological claims because if you point them out, if you point out that they're a lie, um, that that aftershave won't really make you irresistible to women, then the response is like, "What you believe that you're, you're an idiot." Um, so I guess yeah. how is how is this insulation against criticism of? I guess, survivor memoirs specifically and this mode of argumentation in general, how's that different to this kind of cynical reason? You know, also, I don't want to say that it's all entirely cynical. I think the industry itself is cynical, but also, I mean, the the internet runs on female pain. Like, yeah. you get, you know, a girl fresh out of NYU, she's 22 years old, Bustle says they'll give her 50 bucks to write about the worst thing that ever happened to her. She thinks she's going to mm-hmm. become a writer. Like, it's a fucking casting couch. It's it's really dark, bleak shit. Um, and people are, they, they're not necessarily trying to get ahead, but they're like, oh, this is, this is the project. It's a therapeutic project. Feminism is now a therapeutic project. Uh, and that probably it feels like you're doing something productive Mm. and you kind of you know flay yourself before the masses and let them see your guts um because you're told that that's that's the good thing to do and to me to me the first thing that comes to mind when i think about like encouraging very intimate confession is like a cult that sounds uh, dramatic, I think, to some people, but 
if you've ever had an exposure to an extremely conservative insular church, there's a period where people say, okay, well, tell us everything that you did. And eventually making shit up. Um, so, like, it's, it's also true of certain far left organizations. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, I said cults. Well, <laughs> I said. I'm sure anyone who spent a significant amount of time in a fringe Maoist or Trotskyist organization knows all about this. Of course, of course. Um, so I think it's it's become this kind of social coercion to just it's a, it's a confluence of, of the kind of economic uh, incentives behind it. And uh, like a sort of form of social coercion that's formed around not just not just liberal feminism, but um, kind of a, a broad progressive movement. And I guess there's an important element of that where it's it's sold as empowering as well, oh, right? Yeah, so, yeah. so I mean, is it crying in public is now sold as empowering? So, which I mean, to is me, it's disgusting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, is it too simple to say that it's it's just that the trauma industry basically functions by giving us all these lurid, prurient details of sexual assault, and it, you know, it shocks us, whilst it basically sells to um, to predominantly women an idea of empowerment um, and giving them a bit of a, you know, a paycheck from some of the organisations that you that you mentioned. Sure, sure, yeah. I mean, it's a confluence of things. You also can't deny the fact that people are titillated by this stuff. Like, mm. there is something very lurid about the. Again, this is why traditionally I've been very resistant to um, writing anything kind of memoiristic. Or if I do, it's, you know, about my devil-may-care adventures. Um, uh, Because people people are uh, drawn to that stuff for very kind of like lascivious reasons. And a lot of times they try and justify it with a, you know, oh, this is so brave. This is so brave. And they get all this feedback from someone telling them they're brave. And it's like, how is it brave? It got like 20,000 retweets. Sounds like a good, sounds like a good move on her part. Mm. So I guess there's uh, a, sorry, I think uh, Ben. Yeah, it's really coming here. So I think um, along with these new platforms, and I think it's also like uh, part of it is a political economy of media where it's, re- as Amber mentioned, it's really cheap and easy to get views of confessional stories. I mean, like Vice and other publications really have pioneered this. Are we entering in a new phase of sort of like confessional uh, writing and writing about trauma in the age of uh, Me Too? And I think uh, part of what I think is striking, especially in uh, this uh, current sort of like, you know, year after it really began and was um, that a lot of what we've seen in Me Too in some cases, is a lack of institutional solutions to uh, problems of sexual harassment and abuse within um, uh, inst- within these places where they've been taking place, but instead the supposed cultural change. Oh, um, yeah, absolutely. I- You've seen very little mention of labor law changes, for example. And, you know, it, when you mention this stuff, people look at you like you've, you know, just denied the Holocaust or something. But you have to go straight to, okay, this is a problem. What do we do about it? But if you go to what do we do about it, people are like, look, we're, we're just, we're having a moment here. And it's like, well, you know, I don't really want to be a part of the moment. I, <laughs> your moment seems extremely unfun. Uh, I like to have a good time for all the 
shitty things that have happened to me, I'm still largely very net positive about my life. Um, and I don't know that this stuff is actually productive. I've talked to a few kind of, you know, psychoanalysts about this, not like in a clinical setting, but just like friends who are like psychoanalytic Marxists. And I'm like, over a be- couple beers. Yeah, yeah. It can't be good for you to to broadcast the worst thing that ever happened to you, receive tons of praise, and then inevitably, of course, a lot of criticism and scrutiny, and have that be like the foundation of your career. Your pain is your career. That's horrible. And they're like, oh, no, that's no therapist would ever recommend that someone like (laughs) so raw from a traumatic experience write a public you know, a, a public memoir about it. Like that, that would be un, uh, like unethical advice for a therapist to give. Yeah, I think we also see this thing in where, uh, in cases of Me Too, when people have uh, broadcast their experience. And I think this speaks to a lot about like some of the, these cultural issues and the way that uh, not only are people's memories of experience often messy, but uh, relationships get messy too that um, people are become so invested in these uh, pure narratives of victimhood that uh, when somebody's own uh, sort of weird life history comes into the picture from somebody who has uh, come forward as, as part of Me Too, it seems to a way of discrediting everything altogether. And you would think if it's really a movement, it shouldn't really matter about someone's right. individual narrative. And right. now I don't want to mention names because it's such a uh, you know, shit show if we want to get into like, these celebrity duels. But uh, in the essence, it's like people are so invested in having to protect the sanctity of a narrative of the person. Right, right. right. And it's just incredibly shaky ground to build. I mean, you cannot build a political project to deal with a, and it is a political problem. I'm sorry. This is not an interpersonal thing. It's just men are not walking around like frothing rapists all the time. It's not... I'm not interested in any kind of civilizing project with regards to, to feminism. Um, although, although maybe at Yale frat houses. Yeah. Well, of course. Again, though, also a political problem. Burn it down. Uh, but, like, it's um, – you, you risk so much by just hanging these things on, on these horrible traumatic stories. Because if something is um, – uh, is is unreliable or more complicated? It's immediately used to discredit the person. The example I remember coming up with was: um, Are you aware of uh, Tawana Brawley? No. no. Okay, so no. this was an American phenomenon, um, and it, it's from years ago. Uh, and uh, this young woman uh, came home. Uh, reported uh, a, a gang rape by the police is young black woman, uh, a gang rape by the police. Um, there was a huge media outcry for it. Like I think Al Sharpton got involved and, and all of these kind of, you know, political player, just self-appointed community leaders, very cynical people. And they're like, we need justice for Tawana Brawley. They, they basically figured out that, um, she had, she had lied about this. Um, however, in police reports about, uh, and this does not get reported, about her home life, they found out that like her stepfather was, um, he was abusive to her. 
Um, but after they found out she had lied about this, you know, gang rape by the police, no one cared. And it was like this really terrible thing because like this woman was being abused. There was a problem. People who say make up a gang rape, prob there's probably something happening to them, even if it's not the thing they say it is. So the entire investigation got shelled because everyone was so embarrassed about making a media, media spectacle around this one event that turned out to be fallacious. And like, those are the kinds of situations where, where it's just, it, it, you, you, we should be learning from these things. You know, we, sh we should be learning that, you know, c turning women into like poster children is very fraught. It's unfair to women. It's unfair to the victims. And when, you know, maybe they're troubled or fucked up or, you know, just maybe not the ideal poster child, the whole campaign falls apart. And meanwhile, like no one, basically this woman had to go back to a, a home with an abusive stepfather that, and you know, no one would ever listen to him. She could listen to her again. She was the girl who cried wolf, even though people witnessed, you know, like just very creepy, abusive behavior. Um, happening in the home and what's already kind of happening with the me too stuff is that you're starting to see you know whatever you know everyone knows what i'm talking about um, you're starting to see some of these women are crazy uh, and well, like that I doesn't guess, suggest there isn't a problem yeah but i guess if you make the whole the only basis for argumentation for legitimate argument one's personal experience and that does open you up to the possibility that people make stuff up that people are not turn out to not be credible relators of their own story and uh, and also just the, the 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 fact that these stories might not be mutually intelligible to people you can't really build a basis for for solidarity on the base of kind of sp very specific individual experiences yeah, yeah. i think we've, i think we've just seen this case of the supreme court nominations is that one's uh partisan leanings make one view uh, someone's experience as credible as it sounds in a different way. So one can easily countenance the idea that it, the experience happened in the case of the woman who came forward, but it was a doppelganger or something like that if it's convenient <laughs> to your narrative. Because mm -hmm. you're actually just dodging the political question there altogether. Yeah. Well, I think also there is there are people kind of involved in these media spectacles that you know, it's cyclical. It's it's not just me too. It's just it's every kind of um, you know cause du jour or whatever. It 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 has mostly extremely earnest people who want to solve a problem and who are moved by other people's plights. But then it has you know a bunch of chancers who um, and those are the people that you're like when you say okay, well, what is the political solution to this? Because to me, the suggestion is obviously like labor law, um, and. You know, yeah, they look at you like you just said something awful because you're undermining their bottom line, which is to keep the spectacle going. Talking about something which relates to personal experience, but which is obviously a much greater argument behind it, uh, was your piece Daddy Issues, the, the soul of dad under socialism, which mm -hmm. worked as a sort of defense uh, of an article in, in Jacobin, it's okay to have children, but also a kind of elaboration of it, um, which itself relies on a certain personal narrative, but really tries I to... I threw in memoir. I'm, I'm a yeah. huge hypocrite. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fine. You have to be, I think. Um, yeah. 
But, it, you know, it's obviously effective because it isn't putting forward your own personal experience and leave it on the table as if that's enough. You know, it's a ba- it serves as a basis for actually making a political argument. Um, and I, the, the question that it asks is, how, how can we transcend the left's subcultural squabbling? Something that we've discussed uh, many times on this podcast over a variety of different uh, episodes. Um, mm-hmm. So I guess, could you tell us a bit about the project and, and what was the impulse behind the article? So basically, um, uh, God, well, I, I, okay, well, we'll we'll go, we'll go back to talking about everyone's media motivations. Basically my, my column used to be an advice column and I was getting too many um, questions about the same things. Um, everyone has, I would see the same problems over and over again, um, where people were sort of too, you know, politically, intellectually, morally insecure to um, maybe voice their criticisms or skepticism of, you know, like the, the liberal hysteria that you've, you've talked about on, on your own show. So it's like, OK, well, let's just start writing regular essays. Let's make this a traditional um, traditional essay kind of, uh, you know, polemic, et cetera, kind of thing. So I was kind of like. Okay, should I write about like left organizing? Should I write about this? But then the the Jacobin childhood issue came out, which I thought was just so fabulous mm. because I love Jacobin, um, and uh, I think they do a lot of good work. But they do kind of, and this is I think also the nature of being more of a journal than a magazine. They do kind of end up um, doing sort of an antiques roadshow thing where they're like, "This is our '68 issue," and if you want to make socialism into something that's vibrant and relevant to people's lives. You can't antiques roadshow too much, in my opinion. So they had a childhood issue, which was so exciting because it's like this is something that normal people care about. You know, I care about Lenin, but that's because I'm weird. <laughs> um, and uh, and a bunch of just cynical, absurd, ridiculous anti-socialist feminists glommed onto the one article in it that was written by a man, which is, of course, edited by a woman, commissioned by a woman. The whole thing is just, just you can't, you cannot win with these people. Uh, to add some clarification, Connor has a, who wrote the article, has a column in every edition of Jacobin. Yes, he's, he's, he's on the editorial board, yeah. Um, and it was just like, honestly, it's not even my favorite Connor article. Like, it's, it's like, hey, what if... What if we had welfare for for children and parents? Like it's you know, it's like duh. But that is the kind of thing that I I love reading in Jackman, particularly because I love it when Jackman puts out what I call the Jackman article, which is problem dot dot dot, and therefore socialism. And <laughs> it gets a little dull and repetitive, but like that's what they I think that's what they're really good at, just just relentlessly like you know finding the. Um, the surficial problems that people are dealing with and being like, this is a problem of capitalism. Well, especially when it's something which isn't often touched upon by a kind of atomized urbanite left, um, such as childcare, which is, yeah, you know. Yeah, something that, you know, just a huge number of people struggle with daily. Um, And yeah, basically he wrote, he he wrote a a defense of welfare for children and and there was a response that I think is a fundamentally anti-socialist response, which is, look, actually the real problem 
with uh, raising children in America is that men don't step up. And I'm sorry, I've seen these men. They take care of babies. Like, that's that's not the issue I have with them. Like, it, it's just a ridiculously absurd um, suggestion. Because also all of these women, the ones that do have children, you know, always brag about their whatever, four-foot-two baby Bjorn-wearing ad executive <laughs> boyfriend. Um, it's like, yeah, that's, that, that is what they're good for. But I don't think they're like that because they're particularly evolved or whatever, or whatever that means. It's because they have good jobs and they can take time off and they have room to sort of expand into a more egalitarian form of parenting. Yeah, so the so only conclusion you can arrive at is that these women aren't talking about their men. They're talking about the men that I come from. Yeah, it's just it's a coded form of class loathing, right? That it's of working course, class men who are the problem that need to be fixed. Anti-masculinity is absolutely just reactionary, sneaky way of of you know just ha- hiding your contempt for working class people. Do you think this also? I mean, I kind of get get mainstreamed in elements of the left through what we mentioned earlier, which is sort of this ironic misandry. Yeah. 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 I mean, at the, again, how ironic is it at this point? Um, uh, it, it's, it's an easy thing to, to lean on. And, um, it's also, uh, the worst thing is that it's taken all of the joy out of, uh, well, this is the worst thing, but one of the things I complain about with, you know, my female friends is like, wow, they really took all the joy out of bitching about men. It used to be so fun. <laughs> Oh my god, that's a real, uh, you know, dystopian, dystopian conclusion. Like, take take what you will from me, but not that. (laughs) (laughs) That's one of life's greatest joys. Why does it take all the fun out? Because it's like all men are all men are bad. So there's not anything particularly interesting about the specific ways in which these particular men are bad. Yeah, well, and it it overstates the problem. So then you are put in a position where you have to defend men. And it's like, don't make me do that. (laughs) But you have to because, I mean, if you if you defend the working class, there's there's some men there. (laughs) So just just to pick up on this, this point um, about class, which I think comes through in definitely in in the article, um, just maybe something from the uk experience um in the i think in the particularly in, in the noughties there was a very clear erosion of the division between public and private such that mm. basically parenting and children th- that was used as a way to attack attack various aspects of working class culture um everything from dire to smacking became problematized on behalf of children children can't speak for themselves so it was their interests are protected by these politicians to attack working class parents and oh, the way yeah. they parent their children. Yeah, um, and it was it people was... don't love their children as much as we do. I love that one. <laughs> yeah, and Wait, so it was it boarding school where they fucking never mind. I'll stop. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. I mean, but it it, it was. Um, I guess my question is, it was definitely part of a specific new labor kind of petty authoritarian mm-hmm. uh, removal of civil liberties project. Does that really? Oh, wait, you did broke you up. cut out? Yeah, you cut out. We're back. Did Tony Blair come and snatch George away from <laughs> you us? Know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, no. I think I think yeah. that's what GCHQ, they draw the line on criticism of New Labour. You can say you're a Marxist, but you can't criticise um, You can't, yeah, the New parenting Labour's, policies, uh, for example. Uh, you know, yeah, so Peter Donaldson was innocent. Well, too, though, right? 
I mean, I, I almost originally this this the exact same thing happened in the U.S. and during about the same time. Well, a little earlier for us, but um, I, I didn't really go into this. And I I originally I wrote this as just like this highly um, like data driven kind of historical thing. And then I was just like, fuck it. I want people to actually read this. Um, and also, like, I just resent I resented all the women just weaponizing their bad boyfriends to attack socialism. Um, but it happened in the nineties where the, what we call welfare reform, which is a nice euphemism for, you know, taking money away from, from poor families, um, was, uh, of course, obviously pretty unpopular. Um, people really, really relied on that money. And now that they don't have it, like it's, it's, it's had horrible effects, but what the bait and switch for that is like, well, the real problem is deadbeat deaths. So those two policies were married. It's like, we're going to crack down on deadbeat deaths. Yes, we're taking away um, your, uh, your, your, your family welfare. Um, we're taking away like the ch like check welfare no longer exists in America, basically. Uh, we're taking that away. Um, but we're going to go after the real problem, which is your shitty ex. Keeping in mind that, I don't know, that like unemployment all none of that stuff was taken into into account and like i know this very well like you know my dad was in and out of work all the time so half the time he he couldn't work and even when he did he was just kind of a loon and wasn't reliable or whatever so you know this this is married to a neoliberal policy and i i just don't think you can support um you know like a a, a a nuclear family model of economics and, and not be a reactionary. I guess it, it comes back again and again to taking political problems and repackaging them as personal grievances, exactly. as personal difficulties. Yeah. Um, and it's been a very, you know, from Thatcher, who you start with the, um, start your article by quoting, um, yeah, yeah. you know, it's been a very successful um, project, I think in the UK and the US. Um, but you, you there is no society. There are just families. I mean, that's I mean, I think I think we also you see now is that this uh, there's also like this deep historical pessimism that's tied to the individualization of narratives because and uh, that like people think that things can't really change. And that's kind of like crept into the sort of like yeah. failure of collective action, failure of failing group identity and building solidarity networks. And you see this, I think this is part of the problem that you see when like organizations like DSA or Momentum or new left organizations that are emerging is that so many people have uh, internalized this individualistic log logic, which for yes. them is politics, that they, when they try to think of problems as structural and bigger than just individuals and working together, it's, there's often like a instinctive backlash against it because, you know, there's bad people. Absolutely. Yeah, you they, have, they have failed to kill the liberal in their head. You have yeah. inc incredulity towards meta narratives, towards like big uh, stories of social change, and it's all replaced with individual narratives, individual struggles, and and um, uh, difficulties. Yeah, I think I think just on this on this subject, Adolf Reed wrote a who is uh, one of the more uh, aesthetic critics of this type of politics wrote a very interesting essay. Uh, I can't remember what it was published. It might have been the Baffler, Amber. You can correct me if it's wrong called The Problem with Uplift, about yeah, the no. narratives in, ra in race. 
Yeah, and I actually, I sent that article to the Baffler. <laughs> I was like, you should publish it in the Baffler. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's really uh, quite insightful in that uh, basically like these stories of like the one, the person that succeeded uh, um, replaced political change. And then so f- of for like, uh, for instance, we have Barack Obama in the presidency or like we have a woman ruling uh, Germany like Angela Merkel. And in the meantime, the conditions of women in, I don't know what happened in Germany, but I'm assuming, I'm just making this up for the sake of the argument, haven't necessarily improved. They certainly didn't under Thatcher, who was a social conservative, as uh, the conditions of black people in the United States. But this individualization of politics means if you attack, if you point this out, you're attacking all black people, all women. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, I, I don't think the majority of people that, like... It's, it's, a, poli- it's a police, it's policing of discourse discourse in polite spaces rather than anything that has real social traction yeah and also like the left is is less is more tentative and meek about this than you know normies i think the 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 best definition of normies are people for whom politics are not an identity they see it as a mean to an end um if you were to say to uh you know like women in the uk like shit got way worse for women during thatcher they'd be like oh yeah obviously but the, if you, you know, kind of discuss, like, I mean, I, also because it just happened, like, you would never say, um, you would never hear a leftist, you know, before, um, you know, some kind of largely black community group be like, you know, the decline of black wealth under Barack Obama is like, that is just empirically true, but they would be terrified to say it. However, people who aren't what you would call political are like, oh, yeah, I don't know. Things got worse. There's a housing crisis. It all got shaped. One, one issue I think was one that George wanted to touch on um, about uh, Firestone's approach specifically. Yeah. yeah, I did. It's interesting that you that you mentioned her. And I think she has been kind of re, resurfacing in the last, last few years, which I think is a, a fantastic development. But um, and maybe, you know, she somebody like her might say that, uh, my question whether in this article you're going far enough. I mean, when you say if, if you want to socially engineer a loving and responsible masculinity, men themselves must become thoroughly optional, um, meaning their participation in romantic partnership or parenting would not be necessary to the financial security of either a woman or a family. I think that's that's definitely the case. But don't don't socialists, at least of, of some sort, also want women to be optional within a family precisely because that's the stage that we're really looking for when everyone is liberated from the biological constraint of women having to do the reproductive labor. And I'm not sure if I'm, you know, if, if this is something that you would uh, agree with anyway, but just wasn't in the article, but just to, to kind of ask that question, what's the, what's the stage beyond, I guess, kind of social democratic or, or welfare state approach to, to questions of, of childhood. Right. Like the post human stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I did bring up, you know, I'm saying it, with regards to women, mainly because I'm it, like, in some ways, addressing a feminist critique of socialism. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm talking about women more. But yeah, I agree. Obviously, like you know, women should be able to be obsolete too. The one thing, though, about Firestone, and and God bless her because she did try and get everything to its natural conclusion, <laughs> is I don't think that people are going to want robotic wombs anytime soon. Like, never mind the. <laughs> Never mind the, um, you know, the technological barriers of it, which it's, it's going to take a while. Um, 
But I think actually people are kind of sentimental about their bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, and should it be an option? Yes. Do I think many people will take advantage of it? I, probably not, actually. Like, for all, it, for all the bullshit, um, people still like old-fashioned fornication, pregnancy, and reproduction uh, to an irrational degree, obviously. <laughs> I, mean, I think it, it's a... I think it's just a sign of it's just as maybe a sign of my uh, cocktail circles that at least in in kind of cocktail uh, or dinner party conversation there has been the topic of robot rooms raised uh, more frequently recently um, and I, I mean I guess it is a is a question of as to whether socialists should be making this you know this argument because it does seem um, does seem technologically quite far removed from where we're at at the moment but also maybe yeah. Um, I mean, intellectually, I, I love it. Um, but as far as someone who who knows women, and those women are like, no, thank you. I'll, I'll do it the old-fashioned way. I'm, I'm going to have an analog pregnancy. I haven't seen this movie in like nearly 20 years. Uh, but wasn't it in the Matrix, like the, that universe full of robotic yeah. rooms? The pods. Yeah, the pods everywhere. <laughs> oh, batteries too. Yeah. Well, and people find it dystopian. They don't find it ambitious. And that's the problem is like when you land on a utopia that is indistinguishable from dystopia by the large majority of working class people, maybe it's not a path you actually want to push. Well, and maybe there's some uh, other technological advances which might feel a little bit less alienating to start with. Maybe we could sure. just get some faster well, trains or something. I certainly think well, we've, we got, we've, we've got robotic men on the way. It's barbaric. <laughs> We do have robotic men on the way. I've seen those dolls. Oh, yeah. Well, God. (laughs) (laughs) Who who is the market? I I just, like, I'm genuinely curious. Who is the market? Well, there's ever weirder niches and corners of the internet to be sold to. So uh, I guess you'd be surprised. It's some, some sort of version of Rule 34. Like, if you can, if you can think of it, there'll be some product to be sold to them. This is yeah. this is pure fetish, yeah, yeah. All histo- of the, the mechanics of men with none of the charm. Someone's into that. <laughs> the historical justification of capitalism is the creation of new of new needs. So maybe you know, <laughs> maybe we That's will progress. Sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Maybe. <laughs> All right, guys, that is uh, brilliant. Thank you very much, Amber. Uh, that was fascinating. We covered a huge amount of ground. Uh, we are back really soon with more on these similar issues we are talking about modern relationships with Anna Katchian next time up thanks again to Amber catch you later bye bye